you know, I was just looking at the outline. If you guys don't have an outline through the door on the left-hand side, and I was realizing there was quite a bit of scripture in there. It didn't seem like quite that much when I was working on this. As uh, we've been working through the book of Galatians on Wednesday nights for Bible study, and we've been having a really good study, I thought I'd go back and actually, because we're about to wrap that up, I thought I'd go back and actually uh, work on a lesson, but try to tie it to a little bit of today. And so we're going we're gonna to start off looking at Galatians 1, 6 through 9. But it's interesting as we were reading through Galatians and, and studying, uh, as soon as Paul begins his epistle to the congregation there in Galatia, he begins to express some serious concern. Follow along with me, Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, as we continue to read on, we begin to learn a little bit about what's taking place there. But let's focus for just a second as Paul begins to deal with the congregation here because he's, he's marveling within himself that they have decided to turn to another gospel. And they're literally letting themselves be troubled by others who are coming in and perverting the gospel of Christ. Now, that would have been a serious concern for Paul because Paul was the one who had taught them the gospel. And now somebody's coming in behind and they're perverting it. So Paul wants them to know uh, what the gospel actually states as opposed to those that would pervert it. Certainly there's an importance for not only them then, but also for us and having an understanding between the pure gospel and any of those different perversion uh, that are out there. Well, as I began to think a little bit about it, and I think we've talked about it a few times, uh, many throughout time seem to have really not had much concern about believing things that were contrary to our New Testament. And again, for anybody who maybe who's watching this, you have to ask yourself, if there's only one Bible, why do we have so many different groups teaching different things? That's the logical question everyone needs to ask. To accept a different gospel is a very dangerous thing. That's why Paul is bringing this up to the congregation there in Galatia, and he literally tells the consequence of accepting another gospel, which he says is not another. Let's continue on there in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Now you can realize why we opened up with Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19, which basically says, do not add to and do not take away from the Word. At any point when you begin to do that, you are perverting the gospel. You may say, well, then what's, what's really the big deal? Is it really that bad? Well, to not obey the true gospel is to ultimately face condemnation. I'm not going to touch on it now, but we did a little bit this morning in Bible study. It is very sad when many people do not obey the true gospel because, to be honest, they've just never been taught it. They didn't learn it maybe in the religious group they grew up in. Maybe they're not interested in that. But the end result is, is anyone who does not obey the gospel will face condemnation. Paul, who's writing to the church in Galatia, addresses this in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9. He says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, 
When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now you can see why Paul would be so worried about a perverted gospel when we find out that those who do not obey the gospel are going to face condemnation. Paul, who's, he's not the only one who deals with this as he's talking to those in Galatia or as he's dealing with the Thessalonians. We know Peter also dealt with it over in 1 Peter 4.17. He says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Well, Paul certainly was very concerned about the congregation there in Galatia. And I think today we need to be just as concerned about perversions of the gospel as he was. We have an understanding of the consequence. And although we go back and we, we read and we learn that the apostasy learned, or, or started very early within the early church, we know that the cycle continues today. Most of us have seen it around us. And so I thought, you know, what we ought to do today is take a little bit of what we learn and understanding from Galatians, from the, the book of Galatians and some other spots, and go back and begin to address just a couple of the common perversions of the gospel that we see this morning. There's actually so many we can't go back and address them all. We even talked about a couple of them this morning within Bible study. But let's start off talking about one of those perverted gospels today. And I'm going to start off with this one because it's what Paul was dealing with. Salvation by combining the gospel with man's laws. And when I say man's laws, what I'm saying is, is man has determined that he's going to add A, B, C, whatever it is, with the gospel. That's the problem that Paul is dealing with here within the book of Galatians. You've got Jewish Christians who are demanding that the Gentiles had to be circumcised and in essence that they had to go through the law of Moses or combine acts of the law of Moses in conjunction with the gospel in order to be saved. Now let me go back and, and try to address this very logically. Yes, the law of Moses was God's law for His people until the death of Christ. The whole point of the law was pointing toward the fact that there was a Messiah coming. Now let's go on over to Colossians 2, 13-14 because we will learn that yes, that, that law was in place for God's people, but that law would come to an end. It would cease, and he tells us when that took place. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it, to His cross. The old law was nailed to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, the old law also died. The idea again was, as it says here, it was blotted out. Now, I'm not saying that man is under no law. That's what many people have come to the conclusion of today, especially when they misunderstand the book of Romans and a number of other spots. They think that man is not under any type of law. And I'm not suggesting that man is not under some type of law today. What I am saying is, is the law which pointed to Christ, the law of Moses, when it came to an end, it was replaced by the law of Christ. They're no longer following the law of Moses because they're following the law of Christ. I'm not going to give you a lot of passages, but let me give you two. Actually, uh, yeah, let me give you two and I'll tie that in with another one. 
Listen to Galatians 6.2. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, I've had a lot of people tell me we're not under law. We're to fulfill the law of Christ. Now, you may say, I don't even understand. What, what is the law of Christ? Can you define it? Well, let's, let me show you that there's another name for it. There's plenty of names, actually. James 2.12. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Now, you may say, okay, well, so there's the law of Christ, there's the law of liberty, and there's some other names given, but that doesn't really define what's in the law. Well, let's tie that in with John 12, 48, because we all know this one. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. Notice again, we're going to be judged by the law of liberty. And Christ brings this up here in John 12, 48. He says, His words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. We're certainly under law. The law that will judge us are, or is the words of Christ and the words of those ambassadors which he appointed the uh, the apostles and our inspired writers and so since the law of Moses was nailed to the cross and then you've got some there in Galatia who are trying to take that law of Moses and to reinstitute at least portions of it in addition to the gospel what you have is is them trying to be saved by the gospel and teachings of men why do I say teachings of men for the law of Moses? It was inspired writings. It was, until it came to an end and was ceased. And then men decided to bring portions of it back. Okay? And that's what was taking place. Let's go on over to uh, Acts 15, 1 through 5, to show you what was taking place, and then tell you why it was taking place, or at least we see the hint of why it's taking place, and then what we see, take, uh, what we see in regards to it. So let's go to Acts 15, verses 1 through 5. It says, And certain men... We'll find out who these certain men were. Which came down from Judea, taught the brethren, and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about the, this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenix and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed... Let me pause for a minute. Oh, so we have former Jews, Pharisees, who were big followers of the law, sometimes their own teachings, which were not law. And what is it that they're saying? He says, saying, it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. I think maybe these Pharisees uh, forgot who it is that they were dealing with. But you had those who had been Jews who were taking portions of the law of Moses and how they were trying to incorporate or at least add it into the gospel. They were trying to, in essence, bring the Gentile through the law of Moses into the law of Christ. They were adding that. That was never part of the deal. Okay? And so, yes, they're good with the gospel, but they want to add their own thing. And guys, let's just say, for all of us here who grew up in other religious groups, we oftentimes bring our baggage into the church. Right? It's, I think it was brought up this morning. Tradition. We look at some of the traditions we were brought up with, and we don't, we don't see the harm on it. But oftentimes what we find is we begin to start to bind stuff that, that has uh, 
has no legitimate reason for being bound. It's not supported through the Scriptures. Notice how Paul has to deal with this. Let's go on over. We looked at this in Galatians chapter 2. Paul's going to deal with this pretty, pretty quickly. He says, Then fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Let me pause. What bondage? They were trying to bring them back into bondage of certain portions of the law of Moses, which had been nailed to the cross. This is men adding to the gospel. Okay? He says, verse 5, To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. The truth of the gospel contradicted what they were teaching. What they were teaching wasn't part of the gospel. This is men trying to add stuff back uh, or in addition to the gospel that was in place, to the law of liberty, to the law of Christ. Now, let's go on over to Acts 15 real quick because I'm actually going to refute this a little bit farther. Uh, and we're going to refute, and, and I'm going to generalize this for uh, a purpose today and then touch on it. We're going to refute the idea of binding any of the law of Moses like circumcision, circumcision or any other Old Testament teaching that was uh, commanded to be done under the law of Moses. Let's start off by looking at the council here in Jerusalem. Acts 15, verse 22 through 31. <clears throat> it says, Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed uh, Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law, notice here very carefully, to whom we gave no such commandment. Now let me pause for a second. Remember, we started off with Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Don't add to, don't take away. And he's making it very clear here. We in no way said for them to do this. Okay, verse 25. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. Notice they're bringing additional witnesses. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Uh, it's going to be a huge burden for uh, grown Gentile men to have to undergo this to take part in the gospel. Okay, he goes on. That ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled... Uh, and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. All right, so they had to get together to try to deal with this problem where people were going back and trying to bind portions of the Old Testament uh, with the gospel. Okay? In Paul's epistle, to the Galatians, he makes it very clear 
that binding portions of the Old Testament would make them a debtor to every bit of it. That whole idea of these, these Pharisees pushing, okay, you need to be circumcised, he's going to basically lay it out and say, listen, if you're going to do one of them and think that that's going to save you, you can't just pick portions of the law of Moses. You're going to need to do every bit of it. And even then it still wouldn't save you. But he's laying it out logically. Listen to Galatians 5, 1 and 6. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. He's talking about the law of Moses. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Let me pause for a minute. Can you imagine being a Pharisee and going out and teaching or believing that you have obeyed the gospel, but then going back and start binding the law of Moses? The law of Moses was nailed to the cross because it was pointing to Christ and He came. They're now going back and pointing to a law that couldn't even save them, and they're trying to bind portions of it in addition to the gospel. In essence, putting themselves back under this bondage. They're trying to be justified by the law of Moses, which isn't even in place anymore. Then he says, Ye are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Paul said that those who were seeking after being justified through the law of Moses were going to face some serious uh, consequences. Listen to Galatians 5.4 again. He says, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, again, of Moses, ye are fallen from grace. Whether one tries to bind the law of Moses or whether it is some other law today, that man has derived or to come up with, uh, there can't be any grace in that system of salvation. And the reason is, is there's grace found in the gospel, just the gospel alone. But to take that and to either add to, as we learned from Revelation 22, 18 and 19, or to take away from it results in a system which is inferior. It's inferior because either it was modified by adding or it was modified by reducing. In essence, no matter what the system is, where man tries to add or to remove, you've created a system which is different than what we were left with, and you can't find justification in that process. That's how simple it is for us to really get an understanding of not only what was taking place, but what people are still doing today. And we see just by looking at this that there is some serious dangers in the perversion of the gospel. And you can see why Paul starts off with that as he begins to deal with the Galatians. He is worried about a perverted gospel, especially people trying to bind portions of the Old Testament in addition to the New Testament, to the, to the gospel teaching. They weren't the first to do this. They weren't the last to do it. And we still have it taking place today. I'm not going to give you a lot of examples, but I will give you a few. And then I'm going to touch on one that affects a lot of them. Uh, and for anybody who's watching this who is not a member of uh, a faithful church of Christ, don't get angry at what I'm saying here. You can look it up. You can go ask somebody who goes there, and they'll tell you this is true. Were the, were the Galatians the first to try to take Old Testament doctrine and then add it to the gospel? Uh, well, we've got groups doing it today, guys. How about the Seventh-day Adventists? Now, I don't know if you guys have ever... I've had a lot of discussions with Seventh-day Adventists, worked with them, had... Uh, they worship on the Sabbath. 
Guys, that is the seventh day of the week. That is Saturday. We worship on the first day of the week. The verses aren't there in your notes. Write down Acts 20, verse 7. Write down 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Christians worship on the first day of the week. Right? That's when we worship. Seventh-day Adventists, they worship like the Jew. Remember, that law is nailed to the cross. They worship on the Sabbath. They actually follow Jewish dietary law. Right? They can't have bacon. So they're not going to... They're just missing out. They can't have that stuff. They follow Jewish worship. They follow Jewish dietary laws. Uh, in essence, they have added to the gospel. Okay? Same thing that was taking place in Galatia. Exactly the same thing. Are they the only ones? No. you got Messianic Jews today. If you don't know much about the Messianic Jews, they worship on the Sabbath. They observe some of the Jewish holidays. They actually observe Jewish dietary laws. They've, they believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They don't understand the law of of Christ or the, the law of Moses was nailed to the cross with Christ, again Colossians 2.14. They don't realize that law ended and they take and pick portions of it and then they add it to the gospel and they've come up with a new system. Now remember, Paul made it clear, anytime you start taking a system and adding to, taking away, just with conjunction of Revelation 22.18-19, you've created a subpar system through which there can be no justification. Seventh-day Adventists are doing it, Messianic Jews are doing it. Lots of other groups are doing it. Even some churches of Christ, I'm sure, are doing it. Let's go on over to 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Now, Paul warns about this. And I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to go in and I'm going to give you one of these Old Testament practices, which is seen in just about every congregation, at least denominational congregation or community churches. Notice 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times... Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. Abstaining from meats, you mean like you can't have bacon? You mean like the Seventh-day Adventists teach or the Messianic Jews or like the Catholics teach on Friday? I'll just keep on moving on. Many religious groups are taking Old Testament practice today and they are binding it in with the uh, teaching of the gospel. Probably one of the biggest that you'll see taking place, and, and most people think nothing about it, is tithing. Tithing. Again, we've touched on this before. There is no such thing as tithing today within New Testament teaching. We are mandated to give, but we are not mandated a tithe to give or an amount to give. The word tithe means 10%. Okay? The Jews had a three-tier system. Let me break it down for you real quick. Because people today who talk about tithing, you're not tithing. Not like the Jews did. Uh, here's their three-tier system. In the law, God required three distinct kinds of tithing for the Jews. First, the tithes, the tithes that were taken, and this was every year, were taken to support Levitical priests. They dedicated themselves to the work of God. You can uh, look this up in Numbers uh, 18, 21 through 24. They dedicated themselves to the work of God, and therefore the Jewish nation gave a tithe, 10%, to support the work of the Levitical priests. Okay? Secondly, the Jews were required to give an additional tithe 
Um, and the additional tithe was for the three festivals of Passover, of Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Look up Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 26. And if you're not familiar with, the, with those, pa uh, those festivals, they were huge festivals. The tithes that they gave uh, for that were to pay for these three key festivals, and it was funded by the nation because this was a national activity. That's your second tithe, okay? Finally, the Jews were instructed to give a third tithe. This was every third year, and it was for the poor, Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29. Now, taken all together of these three tithes, the average person gave between 20 and 30% of their income, depending on the year in which you look, uh, in which tithes were required. Okay? So you got people today talking about tithing, not like the Jews. <laughs> uh, and it's neither here nor there because Christians are not told how much to give. We are commanded to give, not told how much, but we are told how, how to give. So I don't care whether you have $100 or whether you have $1, you give the same way that I give, even if the amounts are different. Listen to 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. I cited this from memory earlier. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. When do we do this? Upon the first day of the week, all right, we now know when to give, okay? Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Did anybody see the word tithe in there? It's not in there, is it? But pretty much every religious group out there, they want you to write down your name, give them your yearly income so they can make sure you tithe. There is no tithe listed within the New Testament, okay? He's telling us when to give. Okay, let's go on over to 2 Corinthians 9 through 7. This will summarize the rest of it. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so you're going to determine in advance what amount you will give. That amount is going to be based on what follows up after this. Okay, you determine what to give. Purpose in your heart. So let him give, not grudgingly. It better be an amount that doesn't make you go, I had to give to the church again? Yeah, uh... Keep going. Or of necessity, don't give like Larry back here. Brother Larry's looking over your shoulder going, hey, they didn't give, right? You don't give out of necessity either. It's not because somebody's looking at you that you give. You're giving it because you want to give and for the next reason. For God loveth a cheerful giver. We know when to give and we know how to give. We see the attitude of the giver. But the New Testament doesn't teach 10% tithing. And yet virtually every religious congregation out there adds that into their idea of the gospel. So they're, in essence, binding Old Testament teaching in addition to the gospel. Does that sound like the Galatians? Sounds just like the Galatians, doesn't it? Right? What's another perverted gospel? The first one, people taking the gospel and adding uh, man's teaching. Specifically in the case of the Galatians, it was the law of Moses that they were trying to reinstitute. But we've also seen there could be many other man's teachings thrown in there with it. What's another one? Very common today. It's salvation based on man's preferred morality. Most people won't word it like that. Uh, here's what I mean. A lot of people have this idea, and you guys all know people that think this way. If I'm a good person, if I'm a good person, and my goods outweigh my bads, or I, I live in society and, and I do things that make people think that I am a good person, well, I'm the kind of person who would get to go to heaven. 
what they're doing is, is they're setting up a system of salvation based on their preferred morality and what they think is, is uh, what will justify them as a good person worthy enough to get to go to heaven, okay? That's a very common belief. Good moral people, especially if they are spiritual or religious, they're going to be saved. Well, let me, let me refute that. <laughs> Because I know a lot of good people who are not going to heaven, uh, and probably so do you. Good moral people, even devout people, even spiritual people, even religious people still need to be saved. Let's go on over to Acts chapter 10, verse 1 through 6. Let's see what we find out about Cornelius. I wonder what kind of person Cornelius was. Acts 10, starting in verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man. He sound, let me pause for a minute. Does he sound like a pretty good guy so far? He's a, devout, he's a devout man. And one that feared God with all his house. Well, he's a religious person. Some might call him spiritual, whatever you want to call him. It says, which gave much alms to the people. He did good deeds for people, helping the poor, all of that. Guys, in today's mind, the majority of people are like, that's the kind of person that's going to get to go to heaven, right? Notice this, and he prayed to God always, constantly praying. A good person, a devout person, doing good things for other people, and he prays to God. Notice verse 3. He saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid, and he said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with, with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. Listen very carefully. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Why does a devout person who's religious, spiritual, does good things for other people, need someone to tell him what to do? Well... I guess the question would be, what was he even told to do? Let's go over to Acts 11, verse 13 and 14. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Now, wait a minute. A good, righteous, devout, or a devout person, a good person who does... Uh, things for the poor, he prays to God all the time, and he needs to go find out what to do to be saved? Yeah, because even good people need to be saved. Because the only way to be saved is through the gospel. And we know, if you go over to Romans ten seventeen, that only comes through hearing the gospel. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's why he needed Peter to come. Peter needed to come and tell him, even though he was a good person, a devout person, did good things for other people, he still needed to be saved. And as a matter of fact, if you look through the book of Acts and you begin to look at the, the conversion accounts there, almost all of those people were religiously or spiritually minded people. They, they were all spiritually minded people. Matter of fact, let me just break it down real quick. You had the 3,000 there on the day of Pentecost. You've got Jews there who initially were in the crowd sing, saying, crucify him, crucify him, who then realized, oh, wait a minute, yeah, he was the son of God, and we just, we just uh, were out in the crowd chanting crucify him, right? Enough that they said there in, in Acts verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 37, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were religious people. 
Then you've got the Ethiopian eunuch over in Acts 8.27. How do I know he was religious? He's reading through the book Isaiah trying to get it figured out. But he needed somebody to come and tell him what to do to be saved. How about Lydia of Thyatira, Acts 16.14. They're down by the river praying. Then you got Paul. Paul, religious person, Acts 22.3. But guess what he was doing because of his faith? Persecuting the church. Thought he was being a good Jew. Thought he was being the kind of person that God would want him to be, but he wasn't. How many people do you know today who think they're being the kind of person God would want them to be, but they're not? Paul! Guys, we can't be saved by our good works or the idea that, well, I'm a good person. And, and guys, if we're going to be honest, every one of us has done this. We look at the things we do wrong as being not quite as bad as the other guy, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I did that, but it's, it's not like I did that, right? You think, you think Paul, when he came to his conclusion, went, well, yeah, I mean, I was persecuting the church, but I mean, at least I wasn't out, you know, finding circumcision on other. They all had an understanding that wrong was wrong, right? But man seems to have a way of justifying oftentimes the things that they do wrong. And so here you've got good people who need to be taught what it is they need to be, do, what they need to be doing. Why? Well, being a good person or works alone won't save you. Let me go over to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, people are going to... They're going to pervert that passage so quick. And, and they're going to come to this idea, and they have, and they are teaching it all around us, that I, it doesn't matter what I do, I am totally saved by grace. And I have to be real careful on here. Everyone who is saved is saved by grace. But not everybody who thinks they have grace has grace. Let's notice what Paul says over in Titus 3, verse 4 and 7. He says, But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Let me pause. Let me help you guys out, whoever, anybody struggling with this. How many of you guys think you can do enough good things to earn your way to heaven? I'm glad I see head shaking. No. I could never do enough. I could never work hard enough. I could never do anything to earn my way to heaven. Does that mean that I don't have, I, I can't be righteous? No. Let's continue on. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we are justified by His grace. However, we'll touch on it here in a minute, there's still a judging that takes place. And so as I begin to read this, and you're saying, now wait a minute, I'm a little confused. You're saying that works don't save me? No, works don't save you, but they're still required to be done. Let that sink in for a minute. Works don't save you, but you still got to do them. And a lot of times I get accused of things, and I'm saying... You and your mind need to get the understanding of why you do what you do. That's as important as what you do. The why is just as important as the what. You cannot separate the two. Notice what Jesus says in Luke 17, 10. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are, duty, or are commanded you. All right, so these things are commanded. When you've done them all, say, we are unprofitable servants. 
We have done that which was our duty to do. Why are we faithful? Because we're commanded to be faithful. And I can't think for a second in my mind, oh, guess what? My faithfulness just earned me God's grace. I can't earn grace. I get grace because obedience to the law is what I am judged by, which results in grace. But I don't do those things uh, thinking I'm earning my way to heaven. I do them because I'm a servant and it's expected of me. But when I do what's expected of me, grace follows. Uh, pops in my mind, we say it all the time. When you look through the Old Testament, if you will, I will. God constantly talks about the blessings for those who do what they're told to do. We tie that in with John 12, 48. You're going to be judged by the Word. How do you know if you're, for everyone here, how do you know if you're righteous or not? Well, if you understand the standard by which you'll be judged, you can know if you're righteous right now. So if you understand based on John 12, 48, that you're, you are going to be judged based on the words of Christ and the ambassadors in which He appointed our Holy Scriptures, our New Testament, you have an understanding of what it is that's required of you as a servant. And Jesus says, when you do what's commanded of you, just say, that's what's expected of me. I'm a servant. It's, the why is just as important as the what. Both are important. And so you've got people who are taking the gospel and adding stuff to it. You've got those that are basically, in essence, trying to come up with their own gospel through their own preferred sense of morality. And then I'm going to touch on this one, and then I'll be done. And that's it's probably the most common that we find out there. It's perverting of the gospel by teaching salvation by faith only. Now, certainly the, the, the teaching of salvation by faith only teaches you don't need to do anything, which I just totally refuted that in the very last point. But let's focus on this because it's the most prominent we'll come, we'll come in contact with almost on a daily basis. They teach you don't need to do anything, thus no obedience is required. Uh, we've already really refuted that. You may say, how exactly did this all come about? Well, it came about as, as you look at the apostate Catholic Church and to the extent to what that corruption went to, and when you had the Protestant movement and those people protesting primarily against the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church was a primarily works-driven faith. You didn't need to do anything. Uh, when I was raised as a Catholic, guys, I was just told, you're a Catholic, you go to heaven. And if you do a bunch of bad stuff, you spend some time in purgatory, but you still go to heaven, right? At the time, the Catholic Church was so corrupt, but everything was works-driven. And so as the Protestant movement came in and people began to protest, not only against the corruption within the church, they began to protest against some of those things. And as the pendulum swings and you come out of well, works-only faith, you go in and you don't stop in the middle, where James would teach, but you continue on over to the other side, and now you're, instead of works, you're faith only. Okay, plus, it's just a really good, feel-good type of thing, right? Don't got to do anything. It's just God's grace. And so it's a gospel that many people really will, they'll just grasp right onto it, okay? How do we go back and refute this error? Well, let's just start off. I'm going to go over to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. Certainly the gospel of Christ requires obedience. We know that Jesus is the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey Him. So let's finish that. A lot of people love to say, oh, Jesus, He's the author of eternal salvation. Let's finish the passage. 
to all those who obey him. Hebrews 5.9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Nobody will be saved at all that does not obey him. That's not my words. That's straight from the scriptures. And so anybody going out and teaching other things, I don't really need any more verses than that. It's made very clear, okay? Clearly, obedience is required. That idea of faith only, I, I don't even see how people... Clearly, they've never read their scriptures at all. For anybody that would fall into this, uh, really, it's something you've just got to be taught because you can't come up with that from reading the scriptures. Paul actually goes back and he teaches obedience to the faith. Listen to Romans 16, 25 through 26. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandments of the everlasting God made known to all nations. Why was that all made known? For the obedience of faith. <laughs> Don't tell me you... I guess I could just quote from James right now, but we're going to save his verses for a minute. How can you tell me you have faith, but you have no obedience? Paul lays it out. You can't. It's not logical. Not only is it not logical, it's not biblical. Both Paul and Peter warned about those who would not obey the gospel. We mentioned them earlier over in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, 1 Peter 4, 17. James deals with it head on. Let's go on over to James 2.17 and then I'll go down to James 2.24. James makes it very clear that we are not saved by faith only. You think you had people teaching that error in the early church? They had about every other version of error that existed, so yeah, I'm sure they did. James 2.17, Even so faith, if it hath not, hath not works, is dead being alone. Okay, well let's move on down to verse 24. He says, You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only? Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. They're not doing their works to earn salvation. They're doing what's asked of them because they have an understanding that that's what was commanded. And they're just servants. And so when they've done that which is commanded of them, they have an understanding that there's, there's no reason to gloat or glory about it because that's their job as a servant. They're not earning their way to salvation. Remember, the what is just as important as the why. Now, here's the other problem when I begin to deal with people in society and they love to talk about, you guys always think, working your way to heaven. Working your... There's different types of works. And people really should go back and look Galatians, we, we learn that there are the works of the law of Moses or any other law that's derived by man, which, is, uh, which one cannot be justified by. Galatians 2.16. There are works in which uh, you can put in place, but they don't justify you. In essence, without doing any more study on it, it's because they're not part of the gospel system. right? There's some other system uh, based off Revelation 22, 18 and 19 where they've either added to it or they've subtracted but it's a system in which you cannot be justified. So there's, there's those works that man has tried to implement. Then you have uh, meritorious works done by people to try to earn salvation. Let me, do it, let me explain it this way, which I would never do this, but there goes the Bible. I'm not reading that thing anymore, but you know what I am going to do? 
I'm going to try to work my way to heaven, right? I'm going to, I'm going to feed the poor. I'm going, to, I'm going to help my neighbor out when I can. And I'm going to do all kinds of good things, right? Yeah, it's impossible. We've already gone back and covered Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Titus 3, 4, and 7. I can never do a good, enough good stuff to get myself to heaven, right? I can't earn my way to heaven. So there are works that man has derived. There are meritorious works in which I try to earn my salvation. And then there are works... There are the works of God, those things which are commanded of us to please Him. Listen to John 6, 28-29. John 6, starting verse 28. Then said they unto Him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? That's an interesting question. I wish more people would ask that today. And then I wish they would read Jesus' answer. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. That goes exactly along with John 12, 48, doesn't it? By my words, you're going to be judged. What's the works of God? Jesus says, well, you should believe on Him who He sent. How do you show that you believe in the one that was sent? You acknowledge and do His word. Why? Because you're a servant and it was commanded of you. You're not doing it to earn your way to heaven. You're doing it because you believe on the one that was sent, and you were commanded to do those things. Remember, the why is just as important as the what. And let me remind you this as we're talking about the works of God. And he says, believe on the one whom he hath sent. Let me remind you that Jesus mandated baptism and so did the apostles. Mark 16, 15 and 16, Acts 2, 38, Acts 22, 16. So if Jesus mandates something and he says a work of God is to believe on him in whom they have sent. And he mandates baptism. Guess what's a work of God? Baptism. Yeah, I have to go down in the water. And why would I do that? Because I want to be a servant, and I was told to go get baptized. It doesn't matter if it makes any sense to me at all. The idea of going in the water and saying, yep, that's going to that's gonna be the last act I do in, in obeying the gospel, it doesn't have to make any sense to me, any more than dipping seven times in the Jordan. But notice over in Colossians 2.11, you can see God working. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Let me pause for a minute. I'm not going to go back in detail circumcision during a sermon. But we know that that's a man who's doing the cutting away. Okay? But he talks about a circumcision made without hands. Somebody better be asking the question, what in the world's going on here? He says, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, how does that happen? He then says, buried with him in baptism. Let me pause again. You ever notice that all the people who believe in faith only reject baptism because it's a work? And as we start to show that it is a work of God, and we show that there's this cutting away that takes place, that cutting away is our sins when we come up out of that water as a new creation in Christ, Romans 6, 3, and 4. I'm not doing anything. Literally over in... in 1 Peter 3.21, he makes it clear, this isn't a bath. I'm not washing myself. Matter of fact, I can't wash the filth off of myself. I need, I need the blood of Christ. He goes on, buried with Him in baptism, where also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised Him from the dead. Yeah, I want to be a servant, so I'm going to do what He says, and I'm going to go down into the water. But guys, I'm not committing the circumcision there, of the cutting off of sins. And it's not a bath. 
Do I understand the whole process? No, I'm just going to do what I'm told to do. But it's not a work. I'm not doing it to earn my way to heaven. I'm doing it because I want to be a servant. Once I've obeyed that gospel and been added to the church, I am a servant. And that's why the why is just as important as the what. I need to understand it, but I'm doing it not to earn my, my salvation. I'm doing it because I'm a servant. And so putting on Christ occurs through obedience to the faith. Listen to Galatians 3, 26 and 27. This is my last passage. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Let me pause. Do you want to know if you're a child of God? Every single person here should be asking that question. Anybody watching this online? Who are the children of God? Verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. People that teach faith only don't even believe in baptism. How could you be a child of God when you don't even get immersed in water like you're commanded? When he says right here, you know you're the children of God because you've been baptized into Christ and you've put Him on. I wish we could spend a little more time on some of the other perverted Gospels, but those are three of the basics. You've got people who are taking the Gospel and they're adding man's law to it, like we see there in the book of Galatians, and we've got groups doing it today, specifically, probably the most common in tithing. You've got those who take salvation and they try to create a system based on their own preferred morality. And then probably the most common that we see is salvation by faith only. And guys, every one of the perverted Gospels you will know, again, go back to Revelation 22, 18 and 19. They have either added something to it or they've taken something away. When you can get an understanding of either adding or subtracting from the New Testament teaching is a problem, you are on the right track to either becoming a New Testament Christian or you're on the right track to staying a faithful New Testament Christian. As I draw this to a close, our concern is that anybody would, would be affected by a perversion of the gospel, whether it's finding out how to be saved or to stay saved. If you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure if you're a Christian, or if you don't know what to do to become a Christian, it is very simple. Go back and look at the book of Acts. Mark all the conversion accounts. People are going around teaching who Jesus was and why He came. And we have an understanding in Hebrews eleven six 6 that you have to have faith. And Jesus says over in John eight twenty four, if you don't believe that I'm He, you're going to die in your sins. So you have to have belief or a faith in Jesus. And that comes through hearing the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. They found out who He was and why He came, why He died on the cross. They found out about the establishment of the church. They had an understanding of what sin would do to them, and so they repented of their sins, Luke 13, 3 and 5. Paul over there in Mars Hill, Acts 17, 30 and 31, uh, calls them to repent. They confessed Christ with their mouth, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and they were immersed in water for the remission of sins. Jesus commands it in Mark 16, 15 and 16. The Jews were told over in Acts 2, 38 to do it. I just mentioned earlier, it's how you get in to Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. It saves you, 1 Peter 3, 21. It, it's, a new bear, it's a burial in which you come up a new creation, Romans 6, 3 and 4, and you're that new creation because of that circumcision made without hands, which is an operation of God. It's not a work you did. You're simply being a servant. That's how you become a Christian. Once you become a Christian, then your real concern is this. How do I remain pure and make sure that I don't fall like the Galatians, for one of these perverted Gospels. As I draw this to a close, if there's any way that we can assist you in any way, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.